Good morning. I, I'm so glad that Daryl put another song between So Will I and the message because uh, I would not be able to get up after that song. That song just does me in every time. It's, a, it's a just amazing, amazing lyrics. Thank you to our worship team for, for leading us. You know, when our kids are small, they're very easy to redirect. So when we have a little baby who's crawling towards the, the top of the stairs, it's really easy to kind of spare them, rescue them from that. I mean, you just pick them up, you know, they weigh like, you know, a bag of flour and you just pick them up and you set them somewhere else or you put a gate up or whatever. It's, it's pretty easy. But as they get older, it becomes more and more challenging uh, when they become a toddler and they're kind of running, running around. So I had an experience, uh, this is probably my greatest moment of dad shame with my oldest uh, child, Jessica, she was two years old, and Sherry went away for the weekend to a women's conference. So she's gonna go away, she's gonna pray, sing praises, be holy, all that stuff, and she's leaving us at home alone. And so I'm there with Jessica, I think this was the first time probably that I was alone with her. And so we kinda planned a fun weekend, you know, we got, we got the time to ourselves, so we're gonna eat dinner on Friday night, we got some things planned for Saturday. So Friday evening, we, we eat dinner, and then something happened after dinner. To this day, I still, I don't know how this happened, but the next thing I know, she had like made her way towards our, the stairs that went down to our basement. And the first house that, that we lived in, the, there was originally, the way the house was built, there was no stairs to the basement, and so you had to go outside to go down to the basement. Somewhere along the way, somebody cut some stairs into the house, but they were very steep because there wasn't much room for them. So here she goes, making her way towards the top of the stairs, and then it was like one of those slow motion things, you know, where it's like, wait a minute, I'm reaching, and I just couldn't get there in time. And so there she goes down the stairs, and I'm watching her tumble down in slow motion. And these two horrible thoughts flash through my mind simultaneously. What if she's injured? And what is Sherry going to say when she finds <laughs> out about this? So I, I rush down the stairs, I pick her up, fortunately she's still conscious and everything, I, I bring her up and, uh, and I'm just, I'm kind of in a panic. You know, this is our, our first child, again, remember like when you get to the second, especially the third child, you know, you're just standing at the top of the stairs, you okay? You know, it, it, it's different, you know, with your first. And so I, I sat there and I'm like staring at her, or her eyes changing, I don't, I don't know what's going on. So I called my sister because she's a, a nurse, and I'm like in a panic, Judy, what do I do? What do? I do? Here's what happened, whatever. She's like, okay, just most important thing is keep her awake for a couple of hours because you don't want her to fall asleep in case she has a concussion and just watch her over the next couple of hours, see if her activity is normal and all that kind of stuff. She told me some things to look for. And so we did that and she was fine. And it was all, it was all good. Um, so she's pretty durable. So, um, but you know, as, as our kids get older, those stairs get steeper. And so it becomes things like they're the friends that they're choosing to hang out with. And again, as parents, we're watching that. And how can we intervene? How can we help them? Maybe we're not really super excited about the, the friends that they're choosing. Maybe it's sexual activity. 
we're concerned about them getting involved in that, not saving that for marriage. How do we help steer them, redirect them? Maybe it's substance abuse, drug addiction. They're experimenting with those things, and we, we're watching, and it's, it's not as easy anymore to just pick them up like we could when they were a little baby and just redirect them somewhere else. And the question becomes, how do we speak into their life? How do we help them? How do we redirect them? That we, we tend as human beings to fall to one extreme or another when we, when we panic in those situations. We, we either condemn or we condone. And neither one of those is helpful. So if we condemn them in whatever activity they're doing that we, we aren't excited about, don't approve of, if we condemn them, we're going to drive them away. Because nobody likes to hang around with somebody who's criticizing you, nagging you all, all the time. If we condone them, if we say, well, I'll, I just want to be your friend, I, I'll be your best friend and support you. If we go that route, then we lose our opportunity to speak into their life and to challenge them. Because hopefully, as parents, we are further down the road with experience and we have some wisdom to, to share with them. But if you put yourself on the same level as a peer, you lose your opportunity to speak some, some of that wisdom. So... Uh, those are the two extremes, and, and another version of condoning is to enable, especially as we talk about this area of a drug, drug addiction, that's a common thing to fall into, where you, you, you say, I, I know that what you're doing is wrong, it may be legally wrong, it's certainly not healthy, it's not constructive for our family, I know what you're doing is wrong, but you're suffering so much, I can't... I can't let you just keep going down the road you're going, or I can't, I can't let you suffer these, these consequences because that, that doesn't feel right either. So I want to share with you this morning an alternative to either one of, of those extremes, and it's modeled for us by Jesus, who is the best example we can possibly have of reaching people and rescuing people who are headed for the top of the stairs, I mean, that was his whole purpose in coming. And, and even better, actually, than, than uh, or perhaps even more significant for us, is that not only does he rescue us and keep us from, from getting to the top of the stairs and falling down, but if we do actually fall down the stairs, he's able to meet us there and bring healing and put us back together. So we're going we're gonna to look at a scene this morning where Jesus models for us this, this whole balance of, of grace and truth. And if you're here this morning and you have a loved one who is headed for the top of the stairs and you're just not quite sure, how, how do I intervene? How do I relate to them? Because I love them so much, but I, I want good for them. Then, then pay attention. Let's watch and learn from, from Jesus. Um, take a Bible and turn to John chapter 8. Uh, if you don't have a Bible with you, there are some there in your seats. Uh, 990 is the page that, that we're on. And we're doing just a, a short series here for a few weeks here called uh, Tenacious Love. The idea being that we want to be able to, how, how, what does it look like to hold on to what we believe to be right, what we believe God would want us to do in life, and love the people in our life who aren't living according to what we believe God wants them to do? How do we love without letting go of, of those people? And so last week, we applied this 
to the, the LGBTQ uh, question. And, and I know many of you have family members who have embraced a gay lifestyle, an LGBTQ uh, lifestyle. And last week, we talked about, well, how do I, if I believe that, that God doesn't condone or doesn't endorse that lifestyle, how do I love them in the midst of that? How do I build a bridge to them where, that truth can, can go across? And so I've heard from many of you this week and, and been encouraged that you were encouraged by that. And I'll tell you the two instances that were most encouraging for me, and this may be helpful for, for some of you. Two different uh, independent people told me that they shared the podcast from last week with uh, either a family member or a friend who has come out uh, and, and identifies now as gay. And they asked these, this friend and family member to listen to the podcast and said, then we'd like to talk. Let, let's talk about what you heard. They're not asking them to agree. They're not asking them to change their mind and everything. They're just saying, let's have a conversation. And I thought, that to me, that was the ultimate win for, for last week because that's, that's what we want to do is build those, those bridges that, that, uh, with love that truth can, can go across. So you may want to consider that in, in your own family. Um, I, I was really encouraged that, that that message must have fallen in such a way that, that people could do that. So that's what we looked at last week. Today we're going we're gonna to highlight and apply what we're talking about with grace and truth related to drug addiction and having a, a family member, a friend who is, who is trapped in drug addiction. The key scripture for me, as, as God has been uh, working on me for this message series, is John chapter 1, verse 14. It says, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, talking about Jesus, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. The challenge for us human beings is we typically fall off on one side or the other. We lean too heavily on grace or truth. We're condemning or condoning. And Jesus walks this amazing line right down the middle. And this, today we're going to kind of see this in action in a scene that we look at here in John chapter 8. I want to make one kind of teaching note, technical note, before we go into the, the scene here. Uh, if you have your Bible in front of you, it probably says in, in most of your Bibles, right before chapter 8, it says something in brackets, the, the earliest manuscripts do not include these verses that we're looking at here today. And I just want to explain a little bit behind that and, and just educate you a little bit if you don't know like how we get our scriptures. So the Bible, uh, the scripture as we have it, is the best attested ancient document by a landslide, by a hundred billion times, okay? To, um, because other ancient documents, we may have one or two copies of that. We have hundreds of copies of the scriptures, and they're from different geographical areas. And so what we do is we look at all of those, and we compare them, and we see the consistency among them, and it gives us a real confidence that what we have has been translated faithfully to, to convey what God wanted to have preserved about this history of Jesus and, and, uh, and the Hebrew scriptures. And so in this particular case, what we find is that the book of John, as it appears as a unit, the earliest copies of that do not contain these verses that we're looking at here today. In fact, the verses that we're looking at here today, this about 12 verses, shows up in different places in the copies that we have. Sometimes it shows up 
in this part of John. Sometimes it shows up later in John. It actually shows up one time in the book of Luke. Okay, so it's kind of known as the floating text. It kind of floats around. Normally, when we don't have consistency like that, normally we would toss that out. And there are many kind of pseudo-scriptures and even other gospels, Gospel of Thomas, Gospel of Philip. There are other gospels that we don't recognize as authoritative because we don't have the same consistency and authority that we see in these books. So this fragment that, that we have, normally we would, we would throw that out, but the reason we keep it is because it's very consistent in the places that we do find it. The content of it is consistent. The, the age of it is consistent to tell us that this is authentic. The characters in the scene are doing things that are consistent with what we see in the rest of the Gospels. So all of that, scholars conclude from all of that, this is, this is an actual event that happened. This is an actual uh, scene that Jesus participated in. Somebody didn't just make this up. But what we would concede on that is to say this wasn't part of John's original Gospel. But it's kept here uh, because that was the most... Uh, frequent place that it showed up, and also because we do believe that it's historical. So we can have confidence that this really did, did happen. So I wanted to give you that background uh, before we, we dive into what's being said here. All right, let's start in verse 2 of John 8. Early in the morning, Jesus came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now, in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? This, they said, to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Okay, pause there for a second. This is a pretty dramatic, tense scene. I mean, imagine, you know, we're sitting here, you know, we're, we're I'm teaching, and, and you guys are here, you know, witnessing that, listening, and these religious leaders drag this woman in and throw her down in front of, of Jesus and say, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. You talk about embarrassing humiliation for this woman. You talk about tension in the crowd, like, what, what's going on here? What's, what is Jesus going to do? And the, these religious leaders demand that Jesus take a position on what this, this woman has done. There's no question about what she's done, and they want Jesus to take a position. And they appeal to Moses. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone a woman who does something like this. I'm coming to appreciate, as I have conversations with uh, Rabbi Aaron, who some of you remember was here a number of, of weeks ago, uh, Rabbi Aaron in the synagogue just down the street from us, as he and I talk, I'm, I'm realizing how much, how highly Jewish people regard the Torah. I mean, the, the law, that is like way up here, and everything else is subservient to that. Even the, the prophets and the poetry and the history books of, of the Hebrew Scriptures, the Torah is up here. If Moses said something, then you better pay attention to it. And that was the, whole, that was the attitude of all of these people who are listening to the scene and listening to what is going on. And so they're, they're saying, Moses said, here's what we're supposed to do. Now, Jesus, what, what do you say? Because here's what Moses said in Deuteronomy 22, 22. He said, if a man is found lying with the wife of another man, both of them shall die. 
the man who lay with the woman and the woman, so you shall purge the evil from Israel. So this is what Moses said, but there's, there's something odd about this situation, and that is the question, where's the man? Right? Because if they were caught in the act, and I don't want to go too far into what, I don't even know how that could have happened, but I mean, they, they're dragging this woman in, but the man also is to be stoned. These people, they're not out to bring justice here. They're not out for this purification. I mean, that was the reason the stoning was put in place, was we want to purge evil. We want to let people know this is not acceptable behavior. They weren't out for that. Uh, the, the author tells us here what they were out to do. They, they were out to test Jesus. They were trying to discredit him. They were trying to trap Jesus into either condemning or condoning. If he, con- if he condoned this woman, then he would begin to lose his credibility and, and see, that's what these religious leaders wanted, because they were jealous of Jesus' popularity. They were jealous of the authority that he had. All of these people were following him. They wanted to discredit him. And so if Jesus condoned what the woman did, if he said, oh, it's not that big of a deal, that's, we, we don't do stoning anymore. I mean, if he condoned it, then he's going to lose his credibility, because Moses said this. If he condemned her, then he's going to lose his reputation as a friend of sinners. I mean, he, he had begun to gain this, this standing and this, un, this reputation that people, as Andy Stanley says it, people who were nothing like Jesus, liked Jesus. And so he was maybe going to lose that reputation if he says, well, Moses said it, so get the stones ready. We, we've got to do this. So it, it, it's a trap. But Jesus is too, too smart for that. Um, let, let's see what he does in, uh, in verse 6. See, they said this to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. So Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. Like, really? Like, what, what is that? I, actually, it's, it's really instructive for, for us. See, see, take note of this. Jesus does not get sucked into the drama. Okay? So when you and I are faced with the most complicated of situations in our life, when, when you get a note home from school from that teacher, and, and what you want to do is go straight to your kid's room and throw it right in front of them and say, what is this? Maybe. Maybe you need to take a few moments. You need to stoop down and scribble in the dirt. A little bit. Um, maybe when your child comes to you and says, I'm gay, the first thing you do is not to, you know, kind of go explode, whatever, I don't know, whatever your natural response might be, but it might be, okay, I'm going to calm down, I'm going to take a few moments here. Maybe you find drugs in your kid's room. And again, instead of just, what's the first um, natural reaction that you have. Pause. Scribble in the dirt a little bit. We, we don't know what Jesus scribbled in the dirt. There's lots of speculation about what he wrote in the dirt. Did he write words? Did he draw pictures? I mean, what, what did he do? We, we have no idea. Here's, here's one thing that we do know. He wrote in the dirt. He wrote on the ground. And I, I think there might be some significance in the fact that he's writing on, on the ground here, whereas... Centuries before, 
God wrote on stone tablets, wrote that law that Moses gave on stone tablets. And there's probably some significance about the fact that today when he's confronted with this whole tension between law and grace, between truth and grace, for some reason he's choosing to to write in the sand. That's what he did. And so they press him, verse 7, they continued to ask him, and he stood up and said to them, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones, and Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? And she said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. See, Jesus is a genius. (laughs) Um, He's got this perfect balance of grace and truth. See, Jesus confronts sin with compassionate conviction. There's another couple of words here I want to give you for your toolbox. In addition to uh, truth and grace, balancing those things, how about compassionate conviction? So the conviction that truth is true and the law hasn't changed and God's standard is still the same, but we approach those who fail to, to live up to his standard with compassion. It's compassion. It's both. It's this perfect balance. So initially, as these religious leaders are pressing Jesus, he looks past the woman and he confronts them. He confronts their judgmental attitude and he says, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And what he's doing is confronting the judgmental attitude that we talked about last week. And, and Jesus, when Jesus said, uh, trade in your gavel for, uh, for a mirror, you know, before you start trying to take the speck out of somebody else's eye, get the log out of your own eye. And so these men realize, uh, if that's the standard, if it's only people who are without sin that can throw the stone, I, none of us lives up to that. And the older ones leave first. They're probably a little bit wiser, a little bit more aware of their own fallenness. But all of them leave. And Jesus is now alone with the woman. And he has another opportunity now to either condemn or condone her behavior, Uh, but he walks this perfectly balanced line. He says, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? And she said, no one. And he said, well, neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no no more. See, Jesus didn't come to, to condemn. If you were here last week, we looked at this verse from John Chapter 12, if anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him. This is Jesus speaking. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. So he didn't come to condemn, but neither did he come to condone. So in Matthew uh, chapter 5, Jesus quotes the Hebrew scriptures and says, You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. So the standard is still way up here, but Jesus understands that none of us, none of us, meets the standard. And so he has compassion in the midst of his conviction. He confronts sin. 
with compassionate conviction. Interesting in this scene, we, we really never find out what the woman's attitude is. Is she repentant? Is she sorry for what she's done? I mean, I'm sure she's humiliated. But being sorry that you got caught is really different than being sorry that you did the wrong thing. And we never really find out how, what's going on in her heart. But that's really okay because the, the scene really isn't about that. The scene is about how Jesus treats her and how he models for us how to treat the people in our life who may or may not respond with repentance. They may or may not ever come around to doing what God has called them to do, but our response still needs to be one of compassionate conviction. And so Jesus chooses compassion. Here's how we see compassion in Jesus' treatment of her. First of all, he didn't join the mob in condemning her. So for us in our situations with the person in our life who's off the rails, down the stairs, we we don't need to join in the condemnation that may be coming from all the other people around. And everybody may be saying, man, I can't believe what they're doing. They, uh, you know, they, we just need to forget about them, whatever. I mean, don't, don't go along with the angry mob of condemnation. But instead, treat them with dignity. He treated this woman with, with dignity. We, we see that in verse 10 when he calls her woman. This doesn't translate into our, our culture because if, we, if I said to someone, woman, it doesn't come across very respectful. But it's totally different. We have to get into their culture. And actually, that was a way of addressing someone that you weren't close to respectfully. So we actually, earlier in the book of John, Jesus addresses his own mother this way. He addresses the woman at the well this way. This is a respectful way of talking to a woman that you don't know. So he's treating her with dignity, which is so significant in the midst of this mob, in the midst of this situation where she's so humiliated, she needed someone to treat her with dignity. And then the third thing he does is he calls her to change. He doesn't enable her. He doesn't condone her behavior. He calls her to change. He says, don't, just from now on, sin no more. He's calling her to that higher standard. But he's doing that in a context of compassion. And we're left hanging at the end of this, because just John goes on with, with other things here. We're left hanging. We, we don't know how she's going to respond. We don't know if she's going to be obedient now or, or not. And really the question for us is, will we... When Jesus confronts us in our sin, will, like he did her, will, will we change? Will we repent? Will we begin to follow him? And will we model, will we follow Jesus' example as we encounter people in our life who have blown it, who have fallen down the stairs? Will we treat them the way I think that's kind of why we have a cliffhanger here? As we did last week, I want you to hear from someone in a real life situation um, and, and this week, as we said, we're, we're going to talk about uh, drug addiction. So I, I had the opportunity to talk this week with Cheryl Lewis, who is a mom whose heart has been broken over, over her son's struggle. And I want to just give you a little bit of background, and then we're going to hear from her uh, in a video interview here. Um, Cheryl's son, Vince, has been addicted to drugs for almost 20 years 
and started smoking marijuana in high school. Then at 19, started with crack cocaine. He's been in five treatment centers in the last three years. He just continues to repeat a cycle where he, he comes out and he's clean for just a little while and then goes, goes right back. Uh, he's lived in his truck for a year. And perhaps the low point for his life was uh, this past Thanksgiving when he was involuntarily committed by his family to a treatment center because he was threatening suicide. So with that as background, I, I talked to Cheryl and I asked her, you know, how do you handle this struggle, this difficulty of loving someone like this in, in your life? How have you wrestled with the whole idea of enabling? And then how are you finding grace uh, in the midst of this? Um, take a look, a look and a listen uh, to the screens. So as we think about extremes of either condemning someone who's, who's making these kind of choices or condoning their choices, where do you fall on that scale? Uh, thinking on that, I, I probably fall on the side of condemning. I condemned his lifestyle choices, uh, where the drugs took him, and I think Vince took that as condemning him personally instead of condemning his lifestyle choices. I wanted so much for Vince to, to lead a clean and sober life that I took on his responsibilities and I would pay his fines uh, that uh, he incurred. Um, I also would pay his rent, give him gas money, and whatever daily expenses he had. In essence, I was keeping him in his addiction so that uh, this pattern just kept on happening happening so it sounds like enabling maybe not a word that you were thinking of at that time no, probably definitely not but something that you learned later and realized that you were doing yes it was um, many years later after getting into a support group that I realized my helping of Vince was not helping him. Mm -hmm. It was enabling him to continue mm -hmm. in his lifestyle and uh, his using of uh, cocaine. Mm -hmm. A friend of a friend talked to me about a, a group, a support group here in Newtown and this group helped her in her time of need, and I started going. It's, it's called Naranon. It is a uh, support group for loved ones of addicts. So through this support group, they have encouraged me. I, I work a program with, uh, with a sponsor, and I'm able to, um, to see 
uh, how I can best benefit Vince mm. in his recovery. I um, also didn't feel open to talk to anyone about it, uh, af afraid that they would judge my life mm. and also judge my son. Mm -hmm. And I didn't want that, I didn't want to handle that also on top of trying to deal with Vince's addiction. Mm -hmm. So I isolated mm. myself, <laughs> which is not the wisest thing to do. Mm. One day uh, here at Grace Point, I happened upon, uh, I really believe that God sent this person mm. to me that Sunday. I had, um, uh, Doug introduced me to him and um, he um, also had had a son in the in with addiction problems, mm -hmm. and he prayed with me that day, and it was such a relief. Mm -hmm. I I felt that yes, God heard me, God saw mm -hmm. me in in the difficulty that I was having. It's difficult to um, relay, relay to someone your love for them when you're in the midst of all that going on. In hindsight, um, I can say that I've nev I never stopped loving my son, uh, though that, that love has changed. Now I, um, with him being back in, in a uh, treatment center in Montana, I, I can call him on the phone and speak with him and, and tell him that I, I care for him, I, I love him. Well, still very much in the midst of this. This isn't like a happy ending tied up with a bow here at this point. She's still very much wrestling with this, and I told her I appreciate so much uh, her willingness to share her story. I asked her if she could talk to a parent who is dealing with that similar situation. What would she want to say to them? And the number one thing she said was, don't wait to get help. She said she waited for, for far too long. She said, don't, don't hide in your shame. You're not alone. Um, Bucks County has one of the highest incident rates of drug addiction in the country. So if you're dealing with that in your family, you're, you're not alone. And there are others in our church, and I don't, I don't know if you caught that, how transformative it was for her, how God ministered his grace to her that day when, when God intersected her path with someone else who was dealing with that same thing. My prayer for, for Grace Point is that we're, we're a place where it's, it's okay to not be okay. It's okay to stop pretending that, that uh, everything's not perfect and then enter into grace-filled relationships with each other. So first thing she said was don't wait to get help. And then secondly, she said just get educated. 
So some of the resources that she found particularly helpful were the, the Drug and Alcohol Commission of Bucks County, just a lot of really good, solid information from there. And then a faith-based, Christ-centered ministry here locally is the Christian Life Prison and Recovery Ministries. Um, and our own Victor uh, Addictions Victorious, which meets on Friday evenings here at the church. We, have, we will have links for all of these up on our blog uh, posted this afternoon if you want to find more information about that. And Cheryl is going to be available here after the service uh, during our, our prayer time if anyone would like to, to speak with her personally. Uh, she's just a, a real wealth of knowledge and information and helpfulness in the things that she's, she's dealt with. So you may have someone in your own life, a son, daughter, or friend, who is, is dealing with drug addiction, headed for the stairs. Um, the question for you this morning is, how, how do you show compassionate conviction to that person? How do you show tenacious love? How do you hold on to them, don't lose grip of them, but also don't lose grip of the truth that they, they need to know? There's... I, I'm not pretending this morning that there's easy, pat answers for this. Um, probably the best thing I can tell you is to look at Jesus. Look at Jesus' life, how he interacted with, with people, how he modeled this compassionate conviction, and even ask yourself in your situation, if Jesus were right here in my shoes dealing with this person who's in my life, what would Jesus do? How would he model that compassionate conviction? So that's for us as we deal with individuals. And then for us as a church, I just I pray that we will become really great at following Jesus' example in this area. I heard this quote uh, just yesterday that I have to share with you uh, from an author and a pastor named Scott Sauls. He said, what if, what if the local church became the world's answer to loneliness and isolation, thereby becoming the life-giving alternative to social media-induced isolation and depression, soul-stealing pornography habits, body-exploiting hookups, non-committal cohabitations, and lonesome barstools. What if, in the spirit of Jesus, Christians once again became known as those who welcome sinners and eat with them, such that sinners begin to say of Christians, I like them. And I want to be like them. Wouldn't that be great? That's my prayer for us at Grace Point. Would you stand as we're dismissed? We said last week that love is the bridge over which truth can pass. So let's get really good at loving those people in our life who uh, may be falling down the stairs or headed towards the stairs. Jesus came because he loved them. God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life.